0: Turn with me, please, this evening to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, as we continue our way in this great book. We've covered a large section of this gospel now on Sunday night, somewhat piecemeal, the, the opening, closing chapters were actually preached at Christmas and Easter years ago, and then we've gone back in the past year and filled in uh, the middle section. So we'll just finish on through to the end of this gospel on Sunday nights. So Matthew chapter 21, we'll look tonight at about half of this chapter, verses 1 to 22. And let me open by reading verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you." And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt iron. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the full of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your word, the perfect law of liberty. Thank you that the Spirit of God opens our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. So, feed our souls tonight with Jesus Christ, the bread of life. He's revealed to us here in the scriptures. So, grant that we will listen, that we will learn, that we will love the Lord God that is revealed here. And worship and serve him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come tonight to Matthew chapter 21... The journey to Jerusalem that began in the previous chapters now reaches its culmination. Along the way, Jesus has predicted his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And now it is time for those predictions to come to pass. And so Jesus, at the end of chapter 20, leaves Jericho, and here at the beginning of chapter 21, he comes to Jerusalem. And here, he openly declares his status as king, and he challenges the authority of Israel's religious leadership. Now, most of this confrontation in tonight's passage and in several that follow take place or focuses, I should say, on Jerusalem's temple. They're located there, and in Jesus' words, there's in actions, there's a specific focus on the temple as well. And there's two reasons for that. One of those is a very practical reason. The temple is where people gathered during Passover. It had a large surface area, several side hallways or parts of the temple or or alleyways there where people would gather and many would teach in the temple during the Passover week. And so this is where Jesus could go and reach the most people. Scholars, historians, those who look at the records and and try to estimate, say that the population in Jerusalem swelled from around 30,000 to possibly 180,000 during the Passover week. So, going into the temple, Jesus can continue his ministry of teaching Israel. But secondly, there's a symbolic reason, too, why Jesus goes to the temple. You see, Israel's temple was the political, the economic, and the religious heart of first century Judaism so if Jesus is going to assert his authority if he's going to declare himself he must do so at the established place of authority and he must show how he fulfills these symbols the temple the sacrifice etc he must show how he fulfills them by his actions and his authority But of course, such actions mean that a theme of confrontation will pervade these chapters. If Jesus is the true temple and going into Israel's temple and declaring himself the true king and the true prophet and the true priest, well then, confrontation will result. And as we'll see, that will be a theme of these chapters. So let's begin then our look at the final chapters of Matthew's gospel, which by the way, cover only one week, about eight chapters here, but about one week in time covered in these chapters. And we'll see here, beginning tonight, Jesus' confrontation with Israel's religious leaders. Like a prophet... Jesus employs symbolic actions. You ever read the Old Testament prophets, see the different symbolic things they do? Jesus is very much a prophet. More than that, but not less than that. And so through word and through symbol, Jesus will uh, confront the religious leaders, give his teaching, and as we'll see in the ones tonight, the meaning isn't very hard to discern. So let's start this large section of Jesus' confrontation by simply looking tonight at three symbolic actions and the first is this the triumphal entry in verses 1 to 11 the verses we read just a moment ago now likely this story is familiar to you it's rehearsed around Easter time it's read often in church I've actually preached it more than once as we've come to the Easter season Jesus commands the disciples to bring him a donkey he's been journeying from Jericho, a bit of a long journey there, but as he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to end this journey riding on a donkey. Now, most people walked to Passover, so if Jesus gets on a donkey and enters Jerusalem in the Passover season, this is going to be a very observable action. This is something that is going to bring attention to Jesus. He's going to enter Jerusalem in a very noticeable manner. Well, what kind of attention is it going to bring? The kind that calls to mind a biblical prophecy. We read in verses 4 to 5, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's verses 4 through 5, and they're citing Zechariah 9.9. 9. And the citation gets almost the entire verse, except Zechariah also includes the line that this coming king is righteous and victorious. So we get quite a full profile of the coming king. Gentle and riding on a donkey, but also righteous and Victorians. and those might even seem to be coming from different angles. And that is on purpose. Matthew wants us to see a couple of things about Jesus by riding on this donkey. On the one hand, he wants us to see that this king is humble and peaceful. That the Messiah's rule and the Messiah's way will come about differently from what they've expected. We've explored that theme time and time again in Matthew's Gospel and in other Gospels. And yet, at the same time, Matthew would also have a see that Jesus is arriving in a victorious manner. So let's look at kind of those two ideas there. You see, when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem coming into the city from the direction that he is coming. Not only does it call to mind Zechariah's prophecy, but Zechariah's prophecy also calls to mind a prior event, and that would be David's return to Jerusalem after the defeat of Absalom's rebellion. You see, David had been driven out. Driven out by his own son. Now he returns with that rebellion put down. He comes back in triumph as king. And yet we also read in 2 Samuel 19 and 20 that David returned humbly and in peace. We know his grief over the loss of his son. So for Jesus to come riding in on a donkey, a royal escort and yet a humble escort, It would be recognized as Jesus looking to fulfill Zechariah 9.9 and looking to fulfill Israel's institution of king. Here comes a king to Jerusalem. He's going to establish universal peace, worldwide dominion. This savior, this Jesus comes as a victor. And so in comes Jesus riding on a king, or excuse me, riding on a donkey. Now, like I said, Harking back to David makes us think of Jesus both humble and yet also victorious. So on the one hand, Matthew wants us to think that the king coming in is not necessarily coming to battle, but he's coming as one who's already won the battle. He can come in a peaceful way because he is in many ways already victorious. So, Jesus has come to destroy Israel's enemy, but that, is, that enemy is not Rome. That enemy is Satan. Jesus has come to lead his people out of a spiritual exile. And he wants his people to know that he is coming as one already victorious. And if we ask, well, when was that victory won? Think back to Matthew 4 the temptation in the wilderness. When Satan came to them those three times and tried to get him to go around the way of the cross and go around the way of loyalty to God, Jesus resisted him. Jesus triumphed over the devil. And so now he comes as a messianic king, peaceful and victorious to win the true battle. So that's one element there that he's victorious. And then again, as we've already highlighted here, he also comes as one who is humble. He's riding on a donkey rather than a war horse. So his kingdom will be one of peace, rather than one of coercion. He's coming to be the Messiah. He's coming to be the Savior. But it's not the sort that popular patriotism might have hoped for. Again, they'll have to reimagine, like the disciples, who God's Messiah really is in line with his word. And so one commentator writes, Zechariah's vision prepares the reader well, For a kingship which will be established without violence and indeed through submitting to the will of his enemies. So that his ultimate triumph will come only when he is vindicated and saved from death by the power of God. As we considered last week, that's the very kind of leadership that Jesus has been modeling for his disciples, calling them to follow. That same idea came up in our communion reading this morning, our prayer of confession. This is the way. In which Jesus brings in his kingdom. So quite a symbolic gesture here with this triumphal entry. Now how do the people respond? We actually have two responses in the passage. You see in verses 8 through 9. We see a crowd giving him a royal escort and chanting Psalm 118. If we wonder where does this crowd come from? Keep in mind Jesus has been going throughout towns for many months now. And we read there of the 12 disciples that go with him, but we also at other times read of a larger group of disciples. Think of the 70 that Jesus sent out. Think of the women that followed him and supported him from their means. There's a gathering crowd that goes with Jesus, and once they realize he's making his way to Jerusalem, that crowd will only get larger. So this is probably the crowd that's escorting him and chanting Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 belongs to a group of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms, Psalms of praise, Psalms 113 through 118. And the point of this is that those are psalms that recount the Exodus. They tell what God has done in the past, and they do it in a way that then anticipates a greater victory at the end of time. This is what we were hinting at in discussing Romans 9 this morning. Very often the Bible retells its own story. You see it in these Hallel psalms. You see it in Psalms 105 through 106 where they retell the Exodus. Think Stephen's sermon there at the temple or Paul's sermon in Antioch of Pisidia. They kind of give you a flyby of Israel's history in order to show where it's all going. Well, they're chanting these verses here and it's calling to mind all those ideas god saved us in the past so we expect to see his victory and his salvation at the end of time and they attach all of that to jesus their words ascribe to him royal status they understand at least on one level exactly what jesus is doing and what he is saying about himself but then you have a second response and a different response once jesus enters Jerusalem. And notice that verse 10 tells us this response comes from the crowd, or rather, let me put it like this, the inhabitants of the city. So I want you to see that this is different from the crowd that gives him the escort. This is a group of people who are not as familiar with Jesus, or maybe they've learned something about him through his many visits to Jerusalem that we read about in John's Gospel, but they're not quite ready to embrace his claims and you see it in their question in verse 10 who is this who does this man think he is this is the crowd that will later reject him so sometimes we say yeah that crowd was really fickle you know one week it was hosanna the next day it was crucify him not so much it was two different crowds one of familiar people with a certain degree of loyalty others with those who are not familiar and more fearful of the consequences so again you see it don't you the idea of confrontation now let's come to the second symbolic action the cleansing of the temple we read in verses 12 through 17 that Jesus enters the temple courts and drives out all who are buying and selling he overturns the tables and the money changers, the benches of those selling doves, and he says, It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. One other comment on the temple. This commentator writes, It was not only the focus of the nation's religious life, but also a symbol of national identity and pride, particularly since the Maccabean revolt of the second century bc has succeeded in reclaiming it from the deliberate paganization attempted by antiochus Epiphanes. those are some of the events we can read about in our testamental history some of the events anticipated by daniel such as in daniel chapter 9 that these pagan rulers would come and desecrate the temple well israel has succeeded in reclaiming the temple from those pagan uh, leaders. And so it had become this strong symbol of God's victory, God's deliverance. And, and it was something that they took pride in. And on one level, they should. This is something that God ordained and told them to do. And yet we see a departure in Jesus's actions towards them, a departure on their uh, side from doing the things that God wanted them to do. Well, what are those things? Well, when Jesus enters the temple courts, most analysts put this at the court of the Gentiles, so the larger area surrounding the temple building itself, where only Jews could go. Here, stalls were set up, and they were set up under the porticos by those who sold animals for temple sacrifices and those who changed pilgrims' money into the special coinage required for temple offerings, especially the annual temple tax, which was paid just before the Passover. Now again, on one hand, this is a necessary service. This is something that's helpful. If you're going to come offer your sacrifice and give your gifts, these folks will enable you to do so. <coughs> Excuse me. But this was also a controversial practice. Now again, this is looking at historical records, so I'm leaning on other people's Work here, but what many scholars understand from looking at the history is that the priests may only recently have allowed these services to take place on the temple grounds. So previously, these services were rendered, <coughs> excuse me, on the Mount of Olives, so outside of the area of worship. Caiaphas may have been the one who instigated the move. Now, by the way, it's interesting that we will later read about Caiaphas. We would already read about it in John, but we'll later read about it in the gospel as being the one who very much targeted Jesus and was opposed to his ministry. Sources, by the way, also tell us that Pilate was Caiaphas's protector. So it kind of adds a personal dimension, does it not, to some of the actions of Jesus? I mean, this is all under God's control, don't get me wrong, but there's still human actors involved. And if Jesus is going in and overturning these temples, these tables, which Caiaphas had kind of been pushing for, you can see then how he might have an axe to grind with Jesus and lean on his friend Pilate in order to bring some of these things about. All of that aside, the services are now taking place in the temple, and Jesus opposes it. Now, why is Jesus opposed to this practice? Sometimes the way it's explained is it's explained that they were exploiting people. They were overcharging for the animals. They were a higher, a, an unfair exchange rate with the money. And we get that from Jesus saying, you have made my house a den of robbers. And we, we put a focus on that word robbers. So you're stealing from the people. But that may not be exactly what Jesus is getting at. Rather, Jesus is probably getting at the fact that they are misusing the temple. They are not using the temple for the purposes God intended it for. And they are instead using it for a very selfish purpose. Well, what use might God intend the temple for? We get a hint of it in verse 13 where Jesus says, My house will be called a house of prayer." But you are making it a den of robbers. Now follow me here. The phrase house of prayer, that's from the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 56. We read there. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Who are these people coming to the Lord? Foreigners. Who is the house of God for? All nations. Where are these people selling these animals? In the court of Gentiles. The very place it existed for the nations to come and worship God was being used for this service. So we think in the Old Testament of, of Israel as God's chosen people. That's spot on, absolutely. But why? So that they might be the means through which God would draw the world. And at this point in their history, they are not fulfilling that purpose. They are not drawing the nations. In fact, what are they doing? This is the second half of Jesus' words. They're using his temple as a den of robbers. And that phrase also comes from the Old Testament. From Jeremiah chapter 7, where Jeremiah goes to the temple and he preaches his famous temple sermon. And he says to Israel at that time, don't take security in the temple. As if you could just say, hey, we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You're not fulfilling my covenant. And you're treating the temple like a den of robbers. And so put the emphasis there on den. Where do robbers go for safety? To their den. Where was Israel hiding for safety? In their temple. And God was saying, you can't fail to fulfill the covenant purposes. And act like the temple will keep you safe. And so that's why Jesus goes in and overturns these tables and drives these people out as a way, again, like the prophets, like Jeremiah, of saying God is rejecting his temple. God is rejecting the worship you give here. God is rejecting this as a place of safety. Of course, that will funnel into Matthew 24, will it not? Where Jesus then discusses the coming fate of the temple if Israel will not repent. Now, why then would Jesus do this? Why take such a strong prophetic action in order to tell them who he is? That he's the true temple. That he's the true sacrifice. And that he has come, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And not only to reject the temple, but to be torn down himself as the temple. So that a new temple could be built in its place. That's what John anticipated. When he told the people come to his baptism, don't say we're the sons of Abraham. God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. God doesn't need nationality. God doesn't need those things. There's a new one coming. In whom God will identify his people. A new one through whom God will work. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the temple. I'm the sacrifice. I'm the true and faithful Israel. And if you connect with me, then you'll share in that identity. So now the temple's purpose is passing away. It was a good one. A place where God would draw the nations. A place for the sacrifice for forgiveness would be offered but now there's a new temple the ideal temple what the temple was always telling us to look for and interestingly by the way jesus not only declares this through his actions of of overturning the tables but there's a few ironic twists as well we read here look at verses 14 through 17. we read there that as he does these actions the blind and the lame come to him in the temple. And he heals them. Now, under the Old Testament law, the blind and the lame were forbidden to draw near to the tabernacle. But now they are healed by Jesus in the temple. We said Jesus is like David coming back to his city. But again, there's going to be irony. Jesus heals these blind and lame. We read that David excluded the blind and the lame when he set everything up and made the preparations for God's worship. Jerusalem so there's continuity with the old the old is good but there's discontinuity the new is better and Jesus comes then to be the end time temple where those previously excluded are included where those who previously had no access have access in order to be that great temple and of course look at the response from the establishment once again in verse 15, when they saw what Jesus was doing, they were indignant. They asked him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you called forth praise? And so Jesus went out of the city and spent the night at Bethany. Basically, it's the same as we saw in the previous section. Who is this? Who are you to be doing these things? Confrontation. Last symbolic action then the cursing of the fig tree verses 18 through 22 and this story is put here in order to illustrate and further explain jesus's actions in cleansing the temple so it's not fully separated it's almost an addendum to the story that we just read where jesus curses the fruitless fig tree now some have wondered as they've come to the story wow why does jesus curse a plant simply because it couldn't give him food we read there in verse 18 early in the morning as jesus was on his way back to the city he was hungry seeing a fig tree by the road he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves and then he said to it may you never bear fruit again and immediately the fig tree withered now again okay wow so jesus curses a plant simply because he couldn't give him food i mean this seems selfish this almost seems out of character with jesus in fact if you look at the parallel passage in mark it tells us it wasn't even the season for figs. so how is this fair i think on one level we could say well it's just a plan you know let's not over analyze the morals of the situation but i'll be honest here's what i think here's what i think's happening i think jesus does this to the plan. Because it's too good of an opportunity to pass up making a point. This is the perfect symbol for what Jesus is trying to do. And let me explain that. Let me explain how he's trying to communicate his message to Israel by cursing this plant. First, there's a need. Jesus is hungry. He needs food. You can normally expect to find food on plants and I think that corresponds to God's expectations for Israel now maybe he doesn't need them in the way we need food but God expects Israel to fulfill their covenant obligations if you exist as God's covenant people you exist to bear fruit just as plants exist to bear fruit so there's a need and secondly there's an appearance we do read in Matthew's gospel that the plant had leaves and the appearance of leaves implies fruit it is not right for Israel to have the appearance of being God's people but not the fruit in both of those themes by the way a need and appearance they appear in Micah 7 1 listen to this what misery is mine I am this is God speaking by the way I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard there is no cluster of grapes to eat none of the early figs that i crave or we could even translate that i am hungry for so god's a spirit he doesn't get hungry like we do but he compares himself to us in that sense i want fruit i'm hungry it's not here and so i think jesus takes this opportunity maybe it wasn't the season for figs but he takes the opportunity to act out that old testament verse and say this is the problem with israel you've got leaves you look like you should have fruit god expects you to have fruit but you don't and so in order to warn the inhabitants of jerusalem he curses the fig tree as a symbol of his coming judgment on jerusalem and its people and the temple and then interestingly as, as this section draws to a close Jesus connects the incident to prayer. Look at verses 21 to 22. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now here we come to one of those passages that's kind of like the passage, go sell everything. The last thing we want to do is turn down the temperature or the volume on a passage that God expects us to take it exactly as it sounds. At the same time, we don't want to have the wrong expectations because we haven't understood the passage rightly. I don't know about you. I haven't read all of church history. I don't know of anybody that has ever cursed a fig tree like Jesus. I don't know of anybody beyond that who's ever moved a mountain into the sea. Now, maybe nobody before has had enough faith to do it. Maybe one of you will be the first one to do it in this church. But I think when we look at that, we should say, okay, we don't want to turn down Jesus' temperature. We, we, we don't want to take the teeth out of any of his promises. But let's make sure we're also understanding him rightly. And I think there's a few elements that are worth Noticing when Jesus says at the end of verse 21, you can not only do what was done to the fig tree, you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. Where has Jesus just left? The temple. The temple sits on a mountain. And I don't think it's stretching it too much to imagine Jesus saying this mountain and maybe even pointing Towards the temple mount. Jesus is connecting what he has done to the fig tree. With his denunciation on the temple. And Jesus is saying I am going to do something by my power and by my spirit. That is like what I did to this fig tree. But it has reference to the temple. Furthermore, there is an Old Testament background that might inform these words. Listen to these words from Zechariah chapter 4. I believe this is verse 6. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Do you remember the background for Zechariah? The exiles come home. They're to rebuild the temple. The temple work stalls. Some of that was due to opposition. Some of that was due to apathy on the part of the people. The temple work started well, but it stalled. And God gave Zechariah a series of visions to say, I'm going to bring this to completion. I'm going to regather my people. I'm going to build my people. I'm going to bless you. This is one of those visions where Zechariah sees those two olive trees with the oil flowing through them, the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And then God shows them the mountain, probably the temple mountain, and says, look, not by my, not by power, but by my spirit will build this temple. You see that mountain? It's going to become level ground when I choose to act. And I think Jesus is telling us to believe promises like that. And tap into God's redemptive purposes. And so thus when he says, if you have faith and do not doubt, then you can see things like that done in your life and in the life of the church. I'm going to renew this mountain. This religious opposition is nothing to me. I'm going to build this temple because I am the true temple. So do you believe in me? Do you not doubt, think of James, the double-minded man, not just, oh, I don't know, I've got some worries. Like, who are you focused on? Are you loyal to me or not? If you're loyal to me and you believe in me, then you will see things happen. You'll see the end of this age. You'll see the coming of the next one. You'll see the resurrection of God's son. You'll see the building of the new temple, and you'll see the success of God's kingdom. And when you pray in line with those priorities, and when you pray in line with those purposes, and when you believe that the Lord can and will do great things, Jesus says you will receive what you ask for in prayer. So again, don't want to limit it unnecessarily. I do think, though, the background and the context puts it in that frame of reference whereby we could come to God with those kinds of prayers and with great hope in the success of his kingdom. So I close with this. I'll just give them to you as bullet points. Embrace Jesus' vision of kingship. Humility and service. Reigning despite rejection. Embrace Jesus' vision of the kingdom. It's one where the nations are welcomed and we find security not in ourselves but in Jesus. And so thirdly, embrace Jesus as king. Believe in him. He's the temple. We are his people. So let's bear fruit by his grace. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, again, thank you for the beauty of your word and your symbolic actions that proclaim a great king and a great savior. And I pray for us tonight as the people of God. It's been a good Lord's day together today. So send us out now rejoicing in King Jesus, the true temple, the final sacrifice, the one who does all things powerfully by his spirit. Give us hope in you. Give us comfort in you. And as you send us out this week, we're your kingdom citizens. We are your witnesses. Help us to go and work for that. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.